Good morning, Southbridge. Good morning to those of you that are in Theater 14. Can you say good morning? Let me hear you. Yep, that's good. We're glad that you're here. If this is your first time here, welcome. Thanks for coming to Southbridge on this holiday weekend, and um, we're glad that you're here. We hope that you feel welcome. And uh, you've caught us right in the middle of a series that we've called Red Letters, which is really looking at some of the commands of Jesus Christ. Lord willing, 14 weeks in a row looking at various commands of Christ, knowing that they just represent some of the many. And we've looked at and considered what it looks like to repent. Not a very popular command to teach about in church these days, but it is Christ's first command of repentance, to turn not only from God, but to cling to Christ. Secondly, to love him and love the Lord our God with all of our soul, strength, and mind, all of our hearts, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We've considered that. We've looked at what it means to store up a treasure in heaven, to be rich toward God because he wants our hearts. And this morning we look at another command. And uh, as we do that, let's just ask the Lord to teach us and instruct us. I know he's faithful to do that. Lord, for this morning, God, we just ask that you would, you would enable our hearts and minds to be ready to receive your word. That you'd give us a mind that can discern and lay our lives, Lord, a willingness to lay our lives before your word. And God, we ask that by your spirit, you would change and correct and teach us. God, I thank you for each person that is here. I believe that it's by your sovereign plan. No one is here by mistake. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you for the privilege and freedom to meet today. We're grateful. We're grateful to come before you. We're grateful to gather together as an assembly of believers to proclaim the goodness and grace that is found in you and demonstrated through the giving of your Son, Jesus Christ, who we magnify this morning. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray expectantly. Amen. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, as we continue this series, Red Letters, another command of Christ. And I'm going to read for us, and this morning we're going to have the privilege of working through several scriptures, and so I hope that your mind and heart are ready. If not, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Let's look at verse 42, so just the same command really twice, chapter 24, verse 42 through 44, and then in a short time, we'll look at the whole context, okay? Here is the command to consider this morning, Jesus Christ speaking, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day our Lord will come, but understand this, if the owner of the house had, not, had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch, would have not, not let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus' primary intention of this teaching is the suddenness of his arrival, and then the need for our readiness and preparedness. Now, I grew up in a tradition. I came to know Christ when I was seven years old. The love of the Lord overwhelmed me, and the love for me, that he had for me, even though I was a sinner, I came to learn that he died and paid a punishment my punishment upon himself but he didn't just die as many have died in the past that have claimed to be something special but he rose again defeating death and anyone that belongs to have a relationship with him can have one with god through christ and as a seven-year-old that overwhelmed me and i i, I couldn't i could only say yes and i said yes and so at that time i've been sensitive to the things of the lord and one of the teachings that my heritage gave to me was that christ could return at any time some people call this a rapture. Some people call it a second coming. For me, I grew up with a view that there was a rapture before a great tribulation. And the rapture was to be caught up in the air with Christ, that he would come and bring those that are in him to himself. And so with that in mind, I've kind of always had a sensitivity toward maybe some of you grew up in such a tradition and heritage. 
In fact, I brought this uh, belief all the way into adulthood. In fact, when we moved here in 2006, my wife and I, with two children at the time, came here to help our lead pastor and his family help launch Southbridge. We lived in the apartment complex right across the street. And I've shared this story before. And here's my non-rapture story for you. At that time, the apartment complex, there wasn't very many. It's called the Preserve. Maybe some of you live there now. The Preserve didn't have that many um, buildings but, uh, as they do now, but they were building them. And I remember on one particular day, my wife and children were not in the apartment. And I remember having my head stuck in the refrigerator, looking in for something to snack on. And then I heard a noise. Now, I don't know if I'd just been buried in the scriptures and was taking a break, but the noise I heard was this. And then a huge rumble of the apartment. And I went like this. And I sucked in all the oxygen in the apartment and everyone else died with no air. That part's a lie. I thought that this was it, man. Oh, I, my soul leapt out of my body. And then my body said, it's not time. I don't know what kind of heritage you grew up with, but when, mine, when looking at these passages would point toward such. It's a part of my life. And Jesus is teaching his disciples, his 12, this idea of readiness and preparedness. And so this morning, we have the privilege of considering the same. Are we ready? Are we prepared? You know, there's a huge interest in end-time study. The word is eschatology, the study of the end. Some of you may know that. In fact, it's actually a big money business for some people. In fact, people that don't even believe in God make money, usually on Christians, on such endeavors. The study of end times, uh, uh, the, looking at prophecy and looking at s- s- big portions of scripture in, in the prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, looking at the gospels, what Jesus has to say about the things to come. And of course, looking at the book of Revelation, which we actually sang words back to our heavenly father from that book written by the apostle John as a vision was given from God to him for you. Lots of views on such things. You may have heard of words like rapture, tribulation, second coming, millennial kingdom, or millennial reign, judgments, lake of fire, all end times language. Within the study of end times, uh, scholars with, with a lot of credentials who believe God's word to be true disagree about some of the specifics and nuances and timing of things. There are views that you may have heard of of a pre-tribulational rapture, a mid-tribulational rapture, a day of the Lord theory, which is a rapture at the fifth year of the seven years of a seven-year tribulation, a post-tribulational rapture, amillennialism, millennialism, post-millennialism, futurist, preterist, which believes that all prophecies have been fulfilled. That one to me is a no. Partial preterism, a whole bunch of different views, historicists, futurists. People that hold that any of these views to be true have a couple things in common, and here they are. One, they believe that God's word is true. Two, that they believe that there was an original advent of Christ, that he was born. People usually celebrate that at Christmas, right? And that there is a second advent, and now people disagree about the timing nature of that. My heritage and current belief is to take seriously the scripture's commands of readiness and preparedness. My view then would be, termed as a pre-tribulational, premillennial view. My hope in Christ, though, is inspired by scriptures that we can find written by people that came after Christ, planting churches and training those people in those churches, making disciples, just as we've been looking at, making disciples, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. In fact, we see some teachings about a hope in Christ and his return to a letter written to a new church plant, 
not unlike this church in Thessalonica. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Can we read it? Brothers, Paul writes to these new believers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who will fall asleep. That's language for death. Or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. The apartment complex was simply just using dynamite to blow up rocks and causing, um, using a horn to warn people it was coming. But it's because of passages like this that have been placed in my heart from teachers that have gone on before me that have me anticipating such things. But am I fully ready? Am I living as a ready one? And that's what Jesus' teaching is, starting at our command and then all the way forward. See, greater than my commitment to my definitions of my view, I bet if we pulled the people of Southbridge, there'd be lots of different views. But I think anyone that calls Southbridge their home believes that Jesus is Lord. And that there is an end. See, I want, greater than my clinging to my view, I want to live ready for Christ's arrival and ready for life's trouble and any tribulation all the way to the point of my death or his return. What about you? See, there's a context that leads up to our command to keep watch and be ready. Matthew chapter 24 is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's the last of five discourses you can read in the book of Matthew. It's called that because Jesus was on the Mount of Olives and he was speaking with his disciples, telling him these things. And it contains some of the most important prophetic material in all of Scripture. So if someone's going to consider end-time study and be faithful to God's word, they have to decide what they're going to do with Jesus and what he said here. And actually, everyone here has to decide what they're going to do about Jesus and what he said. So you could say, I'm not really interested in that stuff. How can anyone really know? So I'm going to discard it. Well, a no decision or a decision to toss it is also a decision. Today's message then is not about unlocking the mysteries or finding the important code written through this chapter. Yes, events happened and and will happen, but the point of today's teaching is to consider then the inward attitudes for us to adopt and to cultivate into outward action in light of the command of Christ. Watch, be ready. So for many who have never really read God's word before for themselves, they may have created an image of Jesus that's quite accommodating. (laughs) The meek and mild version of Jesus. And so what I'd like to do is read for you the whole context up into our command. It's not going to be on the screen. If you have a copy of the Bible, I want you to look down at that and follow along with me. If you don't own one, we can gift you one before you leave so you have one for yourself. So listen to the teaching and consider the Jesus that you come to know or believe or wonder about. Verse 1 of chapter 24 reads this. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked, that's Jesus. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. 
As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will the sign of your coming of the end of the age be? Now, I'm going to read straight through, and I'm not going to explain anything. And I just want you to let the words of Christ flood your heart as you consider the validity of what he's saying and what the application is for you. Ready? Here we go. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and the kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the world, whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So... When you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter on the Sabbath. For there, for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is on the desert, or go out, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the, son of the, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving into marriage, up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at this coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be grinding with the handmill, one will be taken, and the other left. This is the context that precedes the command that we're looking at. It's a very different kind of teaching, isn't it? Simply than saying, Jesus is a nice guy. Jesus really just mostly cares about social justice. We have to decide what we're going to do with Christ and his teachings. <laughs> wow. See, this passage is a challenge to the interpreter. Someone that wants to be a faithful student of the Bible 
has to do some wrestling with this passage. Jesus taught his disciples to be ready for his return and to stand in the midst of trials and difficulties. Did you even catch that? He said that they're going to take you and they're going to kill you. No one likes to claim that promise. See, some people believe that all this prophecy was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when Rome came and conquered Jerusalem and totally demolished the temple. And it is true. People died, faced trouble, and fled. And fled to the mountains. I've seen the mountains myself. A lot of suffering. A judgment of sorts, it seems. But is that the ultimate point of this teaching? See, I don't think so. I I think there were applications of Jesus' teaching to be made by the disciples then, and then for what they're going to do in preaching this prophecy. And I believe that there are applications to be made for you and I today, I think. So the approach for us today is to consider, are we, each one of us, ready to face Jesus at his arrival or for his judgment? So personally, I want to move from, really what I want to do in my life is move from speculation to implication, because Conviction affects our character and conduct. What you believe about such things should is, is a conviction, and that conviction then affects your character and conduct. If you don't care about such things, if you believe that it's hogwash of sorts, then it won't impact how you live. But if you believe it to be true, then it's going to affect your character, and that character is going to affect your conduct. So let's look at the command again, verse 42. Verse 42, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day the Lord, your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The command is to be alert, which is, which is a repeated warning in this letter. The next chapter and the next chapter all talk about being alert and being ready. Interestingly enough, it's usually contrasted with sleepiness, which is a synonym or used as an illustration for unfaithfulness. Jesus is teaching his followers to be be prepared. How can you be prepared for a surprise? (laughs) Maybe you've had a surprise birthday party before, and you know it's coming, so someone told you that there's going to be one. You know when your birthday is, but you don't know how it's going to be and what's going to happen, right? Just as no one knows when the thief will come into their house, no one knows the hour of the Lord's return, but what would it be like to know that a thief is coming? How would you live if you knew one was coming? You don't know the hour. You can maybe see around the times that it could be. How would you live? Jesus is the master teacher here. He gives the best illustrations. The believer is to be ready, to be ready at all times, and we're to, to watch as one prepared. It reminds me a bit of, uh, well, being in the summer and thinking about this, reminds me of growing up. Uh, in the summer months, my brother and I had a nanny of sorts. In fact, sometimes my brother and I would be joined with another um, a couple brothers, and um, we'd have a nanny over us all, and one week we'd stay at our house, another week we'd stay at their house while our parents worked. Well, when we stayed at our friend's house, the Johnsons, they had a neighbor who had a pool. And in these days, most people didn't have a pool in Michigan, and there also wasn't like neighborhood pools. We had a a county pool, but usually people didn't have pools. But my friend's neighbor had one. And there would be times that that family would raise a flag in the backyard so that anyone who saw it could come and swim. And swimming means a lot to youth, doesn't it? For some reason. But getting a bath doesn't. I don't know that. It's weird. 
So then at that time, we'd always be looking in the back window of my friend's home to see if the flag was up. Flags up. That's all the phrase would have to say. Flags up. Flags up. And at that time, this kind of idea has passed. But we used to say psych for things, which is a lie, meaning flags up. Just kidding. So people would be pumped up and ready for something. But to be ready for us, we would go arrive to the Johnson's house with our suit and towel and our suit on. So when flags up, we're going to be in that pool. Hop a fence, hop a fence, in the pool. Flags up, flags up. But then sometimes it was true and sometimes it was false. But we were ready in that we had our suits on ready to go. Being ready then is not just sitting around waiting to see what will happen. That would be foolish. See, we must be awaiting the Lord's return in how we live, which indicates a kind of preparedness. It's, it's a, a worldview, a lifestyle that is kingdom-oriented. So this is why we spend time looking at these commands, because Jesus expects us to obey his commands. And Jesus says, those that love him, obey him. What we have in our time is, I like Jesus a lot. He seems pretty cool. But it has no implication for how I live. So those that love him, obey him. And one of the commands that we are to obey is to be ready and to be prepared. So what does preparedness look like? Well, Jesus gives us several instances and forms of readiness. You know, there's a hope-filled active anticipation, and it's actually creation-wide. And so another passage for us to consider when we think about end-time study is Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 25. I'll read it for you. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth. Does that sound familiar? Right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what... He already has. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So all through Scripture, I believe, there's this notion, there's this pressing of the last. What is the final? What is the finale? Holding on to our hope for joy-filled eternity is not really wishful escapism, as some believe it to be. It's actually good theology. So I believe the command of readiness for the sudden expectant arrival of Jesus actually applies to me and to you. And Jesus associates his arrival with several stories that teach his followers to be ready in case he comes sooner than anticipated or also to be prepared in case he delays longer than expected. So these teachings are called parables. It's a short story with a meaning. And he taught in parables often so that some would understand and so that some wouldn't understand. It reminds me of those photos that came out several years ago where it's all pixelated and you're supposed to like stare through it to see the picture inside the picture. Jason, just cross your eyes and see the rocket going to the moon behind it. Am I an idiot? I don't get it. It's a big joke on me. Well, a parable is a story that everyone can see at face value what the story is, but has a meaning behind it. And Jesus usually tells a, terrible, a parable to showcase a principle, a kingdom principle. So what I'd like to do with the rest of our time is go parable to parable to parable to parable to see how Jesus shows us what readiness looks like. So it's more than simply sitting around, okay? Verse 45, let's keep going. Look at your Bibles. These are aspects of readiness, and Jesus does all the teaching for us. Verse 45, 
Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in the household to give them their food in the proper time? It will be good for that servant who, whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on the day he does not expect him and in an hour he does not aware of. And will cut him into pieces and assign him a place to the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow, Jesus. So what we see here is a parable of two kinds of servants. And the point is this. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. What's the point? What is the readiness factor here? The point is this. Be faithful in responsibility. How can I be ready, you may ask. I want to abide by the command of Jesus. How can I do it? Number one, be faithful in responsibility. See, the wicked servant here reveals an evil heart. He was primarily motivated by the master's presence. And when that was removed, his wicked heart produced wicked actions. So the servant... The master represents Christ and the servant represents mankind. The servant cannot represent someone that's in the church or a believer because they are cut off. And I don't believe that once you're in God's family, you're then put out of God's family. If you're saved by his grace, you're kept in by his grace. It reminds me of growing up in middle school. Uh, we had a teacher, Miss Gentry. Um, she was several generations ahead of us, and she was coming closer to her time of retirement. And so there was somewhat of a disconnect between me and me in middle school in the early 90s. And, her, and my class was quite small. We had like 20-something kids in my class, a small school that I went to. And we just, um, we were awful. When she'd step out of class, as she would often, we would be as loud as we can so that the hallways of our school could hear us. And as soon as she'd open the door and step in, we'd be quiet as if nothing happened. So we want her to think she was crazy. The master entrusts work to the servant. And when the master's dead, the servant's so diligent. And when the master's gone, the servant's heart is gone. It's fake. It's not being really ready. It's not being faithful with the responsibility given. And Jesus is teaching that every person in the world is responsible to be steward of what he's been given to them from God in accordance to the capacity he's given each one by their mind, their strength, their heart and soul. That's what we looked at a few weeks ago. Therefore, each person will give an account of his or her faithfulness. Every person. In the stage of life that you're in right now, you're being held accountable by God. So single, engaged, married, widowed, whatever stage you're in, God has something for you to be responsible with. You're a dad. How do you be a dad for the kingdom of God, the glory of God? If you're a husband, how do you do that for the glory of God? If you're a wife, a mother, if you're a son-in-law, a daughter-in-law, a friend, an employee, an employer, all that matters. And everyone is held accountable. Isn't this very different teaching than we, we suppose that Jesus is not a judge, and yet we'll see here in a couple of illustrations that Christ is the judge. No one can judge me. Only God can judge me. Isn't it amazing when people say that, they actually assume that God's cool with what they're already doing? <laughs> Jesus is teaching a, a story of responsibility, being faithful in responsibility. If you don't know what, if, if you're a mom, you don't know how to be a godly mom, and yet you know you're responsible to one, then I challenge you to find one that is and ask them to teach you. That's called discipleship. Find the humility to do that. You're young in Christ, you don't know about these things of the Lord, and you don't understand God's word, then meet with someone that does and let them teach you. You're responsible for your life. And then do it. 
See, when we live with the hope of Christ's return, it influences how we live. The chief responsibility for all of us, then, is to make the reality of the gospel of the kingdom known through our lives by what we say and what we do. However, if you, I just want to say this. There's grace in this because you're going to stumble. You are a human. <laughs> as much as the church tries to pretend that we're not, you are a human. We're prone to wander and prone to sin, and it's going to be a lot of repentance on this journey which we've spoken about and Scott preached about. And there's going to be a lot of pressing on, and that's the point of the Christian life, in humility, constantly turning in faith back to the Lord. And that pleases the Lord. So the first thought about being ready, how can I be ready? How can I abide by the command of Christ in the middle of this chapter? The, the first part is to be faithful in responsibility. What are your responsibilities, man, woman? Jesus gives another example a form of readiness. Look at the next verse. Verse 1, chapter 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At morning, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There might not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those that sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Another story then by Christ, helping his disciples, considering what does readiness mean look like. So we see here the the story of the ten virgins. Really, it's like the bridesmaids. It's not that there's a groom's going to marry ten ladies. It's really like the idea of the wedding party, okay? So the ten bridesmaids, and the point is this. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. Readiness looks like live in prepared anticipation. So faithful responsibility, then living in prepared anticipation. So some background on Jewish weddings at this time might be helpful as you consider the story of near, ancient Near East culture. What would happen is the parents would arrange the marriage with the consent of the bride and the groom. Then the couple passed an engagement period of many months, showcasing their faithfulness and their purity. And on the wedding day, the groom then would go to the bride's house to claim his bride from her parents, and then his wedding guests and party would accompany him. Then the marriage ceremony would happen at, at, at her parents' home, at the bride's home. After the ceremony, the groom then would take his bride home, and there would be a procession through the streets. I can't even imagine my wife being interested in that. Hey, everybody, look at us. So this involved a huge procession in the streets. And at night, these, there'd be lights. Everyone would have lights and carry with them so that everyone can see and celebrate what's happening. The bride is with the groom. The bride and groom would consummate their marriage that evening at the groom's home. And then there would be a banquet, which would last sometimes up to seven days or more. What a party. In Jesus' parable, the bridegroom represents Christ, and the ten virgins or wedding guests or bridesmaids, what have you, represent mankind. Now, we know in Scripture, oftentimes, the bride represents the church, but in this story, it's not about that, okay? So the, the, the mankind here is represented by those ten virgins, and the lack of preparation by the five is then a dramatic representation of the unthinkable. They did not take seriously their role, and, they, and then they neglected really the, the only means by which they could do what they were called to do. Their job was to provide light. And yet, they had lamps with no oil. Lamps then with no light. What good is it? 
having a lamp but no light is an illustration of like um, practicing religious activities or uh, claiming a belief in a higher power but nothing personal between you and Jesus. It maybe look, looks like going to church, reading the Bible, but no internal faith in Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You've got the right tools in your hands, like they had lamps, but they didn't do what they were supposed to do. It didn't change them. It didn't change their preparedness. In fact, they slept for a while. And our responsibility is to be ready for his return, but all the while then living as a light in this dark world and letting all others know that Christ is the light of the world. So the unprepared then ask the impossible to prepare. Did you catch it? Uh, share your oil with us. It's, it's happening. Oh, we're not ready. Can I have some? It reminds me, just came to my mind right now. I was such a jerk in college because sometimes I'd ask for notes from the gals that really swore in my class just before the exam because I didn't take notes during class. <laughs> and they would say yes sometimes. They should have said no. However, these folks, they weren't prepared. They, they were turned down. And not because the prepared ones are selfish, but because it's really about the picture that it's impossible then to borrow faith and obedience. It's too late. This is why the prepared ones say, go and buy your own oil, meaning we can't have faith and obedience for you. Some of you have been invited to church today because someone loves you enough. They've probably been sharing the gospel themselves with you, and they thought that you could come to a church that they've enjoyed. There are a lot of churches to choose from the area that preach the gospel and love people well, and yet this friend of yours invited you here. And really what they're hoping for is that you would know Christ. They love you so much that they're going to tell you the truth as they see it. That's love. How much would they have to hate you to not tell you what they think is true? So they're being a light to you and wanting you then to have a faith of your They can't have faith for you. They can't obey for you. And how, much, how many of us would do that for our children if we could, huh? So the point is that each one has, a, has to have a relationship with Christ and live in anticipation of the arrival of Christ. To neglect faith in him, then, is to neglect an obedience that comes from faith, which really means you're unprepared, not ready. Each person has to be prepared one-on-one with Christ. He invites you to himself. So how can I do this? What does it look like in 2015 to live rightly, to not live like the ones that were unprepared? We show a a prepared anticipation when we are mindful then to shine our light for Christ in our relationships because of God. Living as a light in the dark world. As followers of Jesus, we're called upon to partner with God's spirit whereby he cultivates God's character in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. He's doing that for the sake of your relationship with other people so that God gets the glory. So somehow by the way that you work with a work ethic that even those that don't know Christ or despise God creates attention to them and they ask the question, why do you work the way you work so ethically or so hard? And your answer is, because of Jesus. Surely that's rewarded. We obey as Jesus obeyed the Father. So many Christians have believed, many, not all, many Christians believe that Jesus is going to return. In fact, many believe that for 2,000 years. Yet many who profess a belief in Jesus are spiritually sleeping, rocked asleep by the cares of this world, or caught in, ensnared and entangled in secret sin, with eyes off the horizon of Christ's to return, and just on to the 
everydayness, the muddiness of the darkness of this world and all it has to offer. The passion for Christ is gone. That's the opposite of living in anticipation. So what hope, loved one, is there for the ones that are buried into themselves or have not given their lives to Christ? What hope? The hope is Christ. And the answer is to repent. To turn from those things and, and turn to Christ and cling to him and live in anticipation. You demonstrate that in the way that you live your life. Two stories already. Here's another one. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Jesus is teaching us well, isn't he? Verse 14. Again, it will be like the man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, and to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one who gained two, had two talents gained two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your, father's, your master's happiness. The man who had two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had re- received one talent came. Master said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seeds, so I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's the one that belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I did not sow, had not sown and gathered where I had not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money in deposit with bankers so that I would have returned or at least received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is this the Jesus you know? Because this is the Jesus that is. So we have to decide, you have to decide for you. Story of the talents, what's the point? The point is this, to seize the opportunity. See, scholars uh, suggest that a talent equaled 20 years wage. So one's given five, two, one. The difference given to the servants then represents responsibilities. So this is really a story of wasted opportunity in service. I think about that for my life since I've known Christ. All the times I've felt that that conscious, that spirit prompting of I need to share, especially with my loved ones. My cousin comes to mind, and I let the time go and slip away. I think about friends in our church that last night were here in the parking lot giving water to people they may never see again. Why would they do that? The point isn't for social justice so thirsty people have water. It was rooted and because of love. It was an opportunity, and they seized it. The man who goes on the journey represents Christ and the servants represent mankind who are given different levels of responsibility and opportunities given by God than through his general grace in our time. Faithfulness then is, is what the master demands and all will give an account. In the story, the, the fruitless servant is then actually unmasked as an imposter is the idea. 
not a servant at all, really, because he only served himself. And then he's destroyed, Jesus said. When Jesus speaks of the one who does not have, he's actually speaking of those who despise the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. He's not talking about the poor. Therefore, then, his judgment is upon them justly. Those who are faithful with what God has entrusted, persevering in service in order to point people to Jesus, glorifying God, are rewarded for their faithfulness. And let me just remind us of this. In light of all of Scripture, and good Bible students should consider the whole story, and a parable doesn't teach all the things of God, okay? So we don't drive all our theology from a parable. But when considering all of Scripture, the reminder that's best for us in this moment too is that works are a result of faith, not a substitute for faith. Works then are a fruit that demonstrates or evidence true faith. Works that produce kingdom outcomes then are the basis for our rewards, and we looked at that last week. Storing up treasures in heaven. And the Lord is just in presenting those treasures as he desires and sees fit, and he invites you to be a part of it. All of our service then in the kingdom is inherently valuable, so we are to seize and maximize the moments of life in which we've been gifted to make a difference for the sake of the kingdom of God. Right now there's people training your children that they might know Christ. If your child comes to know Christ, don't we owe those teachers everything? My five are in there. They're volunteering. Those adults are volunteering and joining with me to make disciples. You work at our strategic partners and you offer time and sacrifice to those things. That is unto kingdom service so that some might be saved. People come here early, early and set up. And Jad, our pastor for worship, and Lee, they come here at nighttime, basically, to come and set up. Why? Our setup team does this. A missionary team just got back from Panama. Our missionaries are back. From, why do they need to be in Panama so that orphans can find homes? Because in the end, everyone dies, so what does it matter? It matters because it's related to eternity. Eternity matters. The love of God, and that all might come to know him by his grace. That's the opportunity. Your work matters. How you work matters. Seize the opportunity. There's one more story. It's a bit different. Look at it. Verse 31. Last one and then we'll close. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heaven, heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from goats, and he will put the sheep on his right hand on the right and his goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance from the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, and I was a stranger and you invited me in, and I needed clothes, and you clothed me, and I was sick, and you looked after me, and I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothing you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king replied, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you've done for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, and into eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. And I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, or a stranger, and needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? 
And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I thought God was a God of love. Yes, so much so that he sent his son so that all who believe wouldn't have to be cast away into eternal punishment, but can have everlasting life with him. God loves everyone. Not everyone's into him. Therefore, he doesn't force people into his family. But you're invited. The story of the sheep and goats, what does it mean? What's the point? The point is to expect God's just judgment. That's the point. Expect God's just judgment. And in this story, we see Jesus as the judge, and he is our judge, whether you or I like it or not. And he's the perfect judge. The sheep are believers, and the goats are unbelievers, okay? And those who are blessed to take their inheritance in the kingdom of God are ones who lived a life that imitated Jesus and how they engaged others. That's why it's so interesting, though. They didn't even really know they were doing it for Jesus because they asked the question, when did we do this stuff for you, Jesus? It's about how you engage other people. Now, giving water to someone who's thirsty, alone, with no motive for the glory of God, is simply a social justice. So the point is that the motive. And there's reward with a motive that's for the glory of God. And then those not found in him, a just judgment is separation from him. True today. Now again, let me remind us, anyone who's in the kingdom is in the kingdom because Jesus is awesome. The good deeds done by each person that is kingdom bound are the fruit of a relationship, not the basis for their entrance into the kingdom. And there then are the manifestations of God's grace in their lives. That's why when someone asks you, why do you do what you do? We want the answer to be, Lord willing, you've done that, created attention to them. The answer is because of Jesus. And now you're telling them about Jesus and how he's changed you. Jason gets up here earlier and shares a story. Why does he have to share his story about past failures? Answer, because Christ has changed him and he wants everyone to know. And now no, no one's got anything on him. Yeah, but Jason used to do this long ago. Yeah, I already told everybody all that. So now he's sharing his story unto the good, not so that someone is entertained by naughtiness, but entertained by the goodness of the Lord changing his life. Reward, reward, reward. By taking all of Scripture into consideration and then looking at this command, it would be wrong, bad theology to conclude that trusting in one's deeds of social justice is the ticket to heaven. No, that would be self-sufficiency and undoing all the point of Jesus' teaching. You can't be a good girl enough or a good boy enough to white-knuckle it to get into the kingdom yourself. That's why the scriptures say that we are to be poor in spirit. We bring nothing to the table, and when Christ fills our life, now we live in light of what he's done for us. And to those, Jesus says, come on in. When it comes to Jesus' teaching here in the study of end times, eschatology, we're not to be paralyzed with fear or really to be devoured with the detailed conjecture that many make. But it is important to remember daily that life, as we know it, is going to come to an end. And yet we live in a time that scoffs at such a notion. And that's nothing new. I'm going to read for you a passage of scripture from one of Christ's followers who died a martyr's death for Christ. Telling people the gospel all the way through. It's 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3. See if this teaching sounds familiar. Where would Peter have caught this from? First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. The Proverbs say that a scoffer is one that makes fun of those that do right. There's the fool, the wise, and the scoffer in the Proverbs. 
scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it since from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And these waters also, by these waters also, the world at the time was deluged and destroyed. Peter's referencing the Noah account, which Jesus himself referenced. The story of Noah is true. By that same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the coming, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Does that sound familiar? The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, that kind, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. What is your plan of immediate and long-term faithfulness? The no plan plan is a plan that will fail. I believe that all of history will come to a climatic finale. So we're supposed to live as though Jesus is coming back today, but grow in discipline and faithfulness and perseverance as though he's not coming for a hundred years. The end of life or the end of the world, one of them's going to happen in, in your life. Are you ready? Think. If you are not in Christ, today is the day to tell Jesus, I want a relationship with you. I believe in you. I believe that you died and rose again. I am a sinner. I need you. I repent of my sin and I turn and cling to you. If you've been sleeping spiritually, it's time to wake up. Repent. Tell a brother or sister about the secret sin you've had and look at the grace in their eyes as they say, thank you for sharing. Walk in the light. Let's love each other well enough to tell the truth to each other and to hold one another accountable until we see the day approaching. Let's pray. Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for each person that's here. And God, I ask that today would indeed be the day of salvation for some, that people would respond and give their lives to you in this very moment. God, but that's by you. That's by your will and your, and your command. Lord God, please. Thank you for your love and grace and patience, and thank you for your word, God. Help us to know how to apply it rightly. Help us to live boldly. Help us to love others well enough that they might want to receive the gospel.